0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today David Hook continues our series on the letters of Paul to the church at Corinth. Today looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And now, here's David. So our talk this morning is titled, What is holding us back? So. This is a picture of my granddaughter. Since we're on family themes this morning, the uh, the uh, picture of obviously of her enjoying the uh, the water, doesn't it? I to this back here. And uh, so I wanted you to imagine this morning that you're up to your waist in water like she is, and that you want to get quickly from one spot to another. So how easy is it to do that? You know, like you can't get very fast. Very far, very fast when you're running through the water like that. It's, it's really a drag. It holds you back. It keeps you from moving fast. I don't know if you've ever tried to catch minnows with a net. Oh, kids like doing that. But you, you, you look down and you see these minnows. They're right there. And then they start to move and you start to move. And you can't keep up to them. They're going like crazy. And you're just wallowing away in the water. So, so <coughs> held back. So... You think well why can't I move like the fish down there you know like they are they're going so fast but but just a minute we're not a fish <laughs> we're a person we're not meant to go fast through water we're we're not too bad on land but so sort of there's a lot of land animals that go a lot faster than us but but our element is certainly not water when we're going fast and so this morning I'm just thinking about uh, exploring this idea of being held back and what's Holding us back. And specifically, I would would like to consider this topic that relates to our new life in Christ. From our study of chapter 5 last week, we learned that believers in Jesus have been given a marvelous new life and they have been given the privilege and responsibility of being the king's ambassadors. And as I mentioned, the, the chapter divisions don't really uh, line up with thoughts, so we're going to look back in chapter 5 and pick up from there, and we'll just go into chapter 7 for a, a brief verse as well. So, we'll read a few verses uh, to get the context out of chapter 5 of what Paul is writing about, and then we'll, then we'll read the first verse of chapter 6. Now, I'm going to read this from uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. Because I think that his version does a nice job of, of recognizing the context of these verses and tying the, the themes and the thoughts together. And I'll say a little bit more about that as we, as we get into the, into the talk. So here's the, here's the verses in chapter 5 and the first one in chapter 6. Now, we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start is created new. The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from God, who settled the relationship between us and him, and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We are Christ's representatives. Companions, as we are in this work with you, we beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life God has given us. God has given us. Part of them from this chapter. My first observation is that we've been given a marvelous gift of new life. But it must be possible to waste it or else Paul wouldn't say, don't squander this marvelous gift. Can it be true that we have a possibility of wasting this life? Now, I understood that when we received new life, we were we were born again. That moment when we decided to trust Jesus and as our rescuer from our sin. So we have this new life. If we have this new life, why is Paul writing about squandering it or wasting it? Is that a thing that can really happen? This plea of Paul should give us pause to think that there may be more to this new life. It is not just a reality that begins when one decides to become a follower of Jesus, but is an ongoing process of transformation. It's more than just a possession but it is a gift to be used and developed. Now if someone gave you a a computer for your birthday or whatever, a gift, that's a nice gift, and I'll give you a computer. If if you said, Great, now I have a computer and you just put it up on the shelf and let it collect dust, you'd have a computer, but it wouldn't be what the computer was meant to do, would it? It wouldn't be it would be wasting or squandering the, the computer because it can do a lot, and you didn't use it. You just put it on the shelf. Instead, you'd, you'd want to learn how to use it and how to put it to work. So instead of thinking of a new life as a one-time gift, rather think of it as an opportunity for ongoing life service to Jesus as his representative. This gift of the, of, from God has the potential to be the greatest experience That can ever happen to us. But we know from our own experience with giving and receiving of gifts that gifts can be wasted or squandered. This concept of squandering or receiving in vain means that the gift might fall short in its potential or might not bring the desired results. It's a risk that any gift giver takes, that their gift that they give might not be used the way we, we think it should be or the way that they expected it to be used. Think about uh, a generous parent who gives his child a car for whatever reason, graduation or something like that. That never happened in our family, but uh, but that would be a real generous gift. And you think, well, that this child has now got a car. They can go back and forth to school, to university or whatever, and they can use it to run errands and to get groceries and to need do all the things you need a car for. But being a child and being a, A kid uses it to drive wildly in all directions and, uh, you know, goes to parties and, you know, squeals the tires and all of that thing. You're cringing. This is not why we gave that gift. You know, that's not the reason. And that would be the gift falling short of its potential that it could be used for. So Jesus told a story of a young man who was given his inheritance early. And you think of all the good things he could have done with that inheritance. You know, he could have invested it. He could have gone out and started his own business or, you know, whatever. He could have used it wisely. Instead, what did he do with that inheritance? He went to a far country and partied and spent lavishly on himself and his friends. And, he, and before long, he had nothing left and he was in abject poverty. So he wasted that great gift and that potential for that gift. Is that a possibility for us? Could the gift of life that we have been given fail to achieve its potential? How could that happen? How could we prevent that from happening? So we'll be looking at those questions in this chapter, but at this point, I'd like to point out that God has offered some significant help in the use of the gift that he's given us. It's not just a gift that he's given and then walked away, but he has promised to help us learn to use this gift and to use it well. So in verse 2 we read, God reminds us, I heard your call in the nick of time. The day you needed me, I was there to help. It's interesting to note that Paul gets that thought, I heard you in your call in the nick of time. The day you needed me, I was there to help. From the poem that Isaiah wrote, and we've studied some of that poem in the past. And that verse is from chapter 49 and verse 8 of Isaiah. And in that section of Isaiah, it's one of those places where it mentions the servant, the servant of the Lord. And the servant here is receiving this promise from God in in Isaiah's poem that God is telling his servant, I will help you. I'll be there to help you. And the day you need me, I will be there. And that servant in Isaiah, we often use as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, in a sense, this is the God offering His servant to be a help and to be a help when He's doing His servanthood life on earth. And what was the servant's role in Isaiah chapter nine or chapter forty-nine? Following the few verses there, you'll see if you read back to that that the the servant was to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and light in the darkness. It sounds an awful lot like the life that we have been given to be as Christ's representatives to bring that message of hope to the world of rest, reconciliation to god to make friends with the world for god like make <laughs> make the world friends of god is what i wanted to say and that offer of help is there for us as well paul says i think i think paul found this a very helpful verse in his own life as he walked through life and was suffering and dealing with all sorts of troubles He would go back and read these things, like in Isaiah, and says, I'm there to help you. I'm here when you need me. And and Paul found that to be of great comfort. So we have that offer of help, and it's something to keep in mind as we live out our new life. The next few verses say, well, now is the right time to listen, the day to be helped. Don't put it off. Don't frustrate God's work by showing up late, throwing a question mark over everything we're doing. So what are the consequences of not, uh, uh, of not, or of squandering this gift? Well, there would be great personal loss. And also, there's the potential of great uh, harm to the reputation of of the king, the representative, uh, whose representative we are. If we are not living the way the ambassador should live, then it reflects poorly on the king and on the kingdom that we represent. So, if if those who have received this gift but live as though they hadn't, they will leave an ugly stain on the on the tapestry, which is the kingdom of God. And it's not hard to think of some examples of uh, of Christians who have lived badly, if you want to put it that way. My mind quickly jumps to the crusaders of the medieval times, for example, you know, and how they did things that, that have ruined and made it difficult for Christianity to be respected in that part of the world. It's just difficult because you bring up the crusades and people are Still, a, a thousand years later almost, still turned off by that, uh, by those actions. And we can think of examples that are much closer to home and much nearer to our own time and even in our own time where the reputation of the kingdom of God has been stained by people who are not living their new life appropriately. So as Peterson puts it, are we... Ourselves, are we showing up late for work, or, or maybe we're not showing up at all? And if if that is the case, what is holding us back? The second observation I'd like to make is that this new life is a thrilling adventure, but paradoxically, it can be difficult and discouraging at times. We often read these next few verses of as Paul's autobiography, but I suggest they're kind of of a general job description, and as, as Paul experienced it, and includes the qualities needed by those interested in this work. But I, I don't think you're ever going to find a job description quite like this in the classified ads. It might read something like this. This job requires a very high level of commitment, as it entails very difficult working conditions such as long hours with little time for eating or sleeping. Violent opposition to the work is likely. It, is, it also requires that the applicant has the highest of moral standards and character, but must, the applicant must also have the ability to withstand severe criticism and slander. There is no specific salary attached to this job, and it will likely result in the loss of reputation, health, peace of mind, and possessions but it does offer the promise of limitless satisfaction <laughs> so how many are rushing out to uh, to sign up for that job but let's read how paul puts it and i and i you know this this is just an amazing bit of writing here from paul he, he just he goes through a list and and bounces back and forth contrasts one one thing to another goes uh like it becomes very paradoxical at the end. It's just, it's just amazing. Just enjoy it as we read it together. Our work as God's servants get validated, not in the details. People are watching us as we stay at our post, alertly, unswervingly, in hard times, tough times, bad times, when, we've, when we're beaten up, jailed and mobbed, working hard, working late, working without eating, with pure heart, Clear head, steady hand, in gentleness, holiness, and honest love. And when we're telling the truth, and when we're showing God his power, when we're doing our best, setting things right, when we're praised and when we're blamed, slandered and honored, true to our word, though distrusted, ignored by the world, but recognized by God, terrifically alive, though rumored to be dead, beaten within an inch of our lives, but refusing to die, immersed in tears, yet always filled with deep joy living on handouts yet enriching many having nothing having it all it's just it's just such a contrast and and, and paradoxical the, the 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 opposites here that, that go in, along with this new life that we can that we've been given kind of makes me think of the roller coaster. You know, like, you're up, you're down, you're going straight, you're going sideways, you're going up again and down again, and then all of a sudden you don't know where you're going, and you're you're just spun around by all the things. Why do we go on roller coasters anyway? Crazy idea, crazy idea. But... When you get to the end of the ride of the roller coaster you say, "Wow, that was great. Let's go again." You know, some of us do. Anyway, some of us maybe wander, or say, "Let me out of here." But uh I you know, it's a thrilling ride, it's right? It's something that you can really uh, get excited over. There's adrenaline rush, I guess. I I suppose that was exciting. But but the ups and downs and the sudden twists and turns, that's really what Paul's saying is happening in his to his life and And this new life has some pretty hard um, aspects to take. Hunger, jail, beatings, unfairness, loss. Many would say, I don't want that kind of adventure or thrill in my life. I I like my nice, stable life, you know, the one that just smoothly goes along, doesn't get any deviation, doesn't go bumpy, It's just nice and smooth. I like my comfortable bed and my nice neighborhood and my friends and my family, I don't want any adventures, thank you very much. Just uh, let me stay on my course here. But that that's sort of much like, you know, we read The Hobbit, we read Bilbo Baggins' story. Anybody knows about The Hobbit, I hope. Anyway, Bilbo's there at his house and the dwarves and Gandalf show up and they have this nice uh, big party and they invite Bilbo on an adventure of his lifetime and Bilbo says, uh, we are plain quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. I can't think of what anybody sees in them. And so, Bilbo, after a while, reluctantly, but heads out on this adventure and he does suffer a lot. He is jailed, he's beaten up, he's tortured, you know, like he's lost and he's cold and, oh, it's just terrible, you know, has to fight with a dragon. Comes back from all of that and says, that that really changed me. And, you know, life is different now. And that was a real adventure and it became the, the focal portion of his story as the story continued on. So many are put off with the idea that new life would, would come with such a high cost to their own comfort. The last line in Paul's um, job description there is is just amazing, I think, is... It's having nothing, having it all. It's a wonderful summary of that paradox that that we end up with nothing, but we have everything at the end of this new life and when we reach that conclusion. It's uh, very much what Jesus said a number of times in the Gospels. I count at least five times when he used words very similar to this, that if you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you'll lose it. But if you let that life go, you'll get life on God's terms. Our desire and for comfort and our reluctance to give up what we have often holds us back from moving forward with the new life. We love to be in our comfort zone, but the new life would see us leave our old comfortable life behind and move on to the rewarding challenges of this new life. Is our desire for comfort holding us back from experiencing new life. The third observation that that I would make is that this new life is vast and expansive, but it can be restricted. Here's the verses 11 to 13. Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives, live openly and expansively. If you're following along in your translation, your verses will look a little different than that one. Um, and why is that? Well, these are pretty hard verses, hard words to translate if you look back. And Paul uses a number of different metaphors, and so the the translators wrestle with how to use put those picture words into our language so that we understand them. Just to, for interest, I'll show you the the Greek words as they appear in my interlinear translation. That's where you get the the Greek text and the English words are right underneath, and the 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 word for word translation. Then then you can understand where this is hard to understand for translators and how to put it in. So it says, The mouth of us has opened to you, Corinthians. The heart of us has been enlarged. You are not restrained in us. You are restrained, but in the bowels of you. But for the same recompense as to children, I say, be enlarged also you. That <laughs> doesn't uh, read very easily. So the, the the translators, for example, have come up with different ways of translating. it, And, and the King James translators did a very good job of accurately translating it. And they said, it says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is opened unto you, our heart is enlarged. You are not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Which you can see is really accurate translation, but it's still difficult for us in our day and age to understand how that uh, really speaks to us. So, yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, but uh, one bit of information that might be helpful uh, is that the, the word for bowels is the, often used as a metaphor for the the seat of emotions, the the seat of feelings of love. And we have a similar emotion, uh, expression when we say it's our gut feeling. You know, it's a, it's kind of like that. And so if you, you can see that, perhaps Paul is, is really saying there's a problem with their new life. It's an internal problem. It's a bowel problem or a love problem that, that, that they have, and uh, it's somewhat restricted, or restrained. So there's a there's a problem with the flow of love. Now, Paul. Some translators make it say it's a flow of love from the Corinthians to Paul, but I'm suggesting that the problem is maybe a flow of love from from them to the Lord Jesus, and that that's the, where the restriction is, and there's a there's a blockage there, and and they have a problem that needs to be resolved there's something holding back so you've all been using a garden garden hose at some time say you're out washing your car and you're doing this and all of a sudden the water just starts to dribble out you know like what happened you know the tap's still turned on there's still water in the pipes but it's not getting to my car to wash my car And you look back and, oh yeah, I pulled my hose and it's kinked. And there's a kink in the hose and it's restricted. So you open the kink and all of a sudden the water gushes back out again. So you can't do the job with a kinked hose. You need to keep the kinks out of it. So if our love for Jesus gets limited in our life, it will become dry or anemic and it'll be not as satisfying. We need to discover where the kink is and unblock the flow. Then we would better be able to experience the abundant life that Jesus offers. Matthew, in his gospel, tells the account of a young man who came to Jesus asking what he could do to get life. And uh, Jesus says, well, you know, keep all the commandments. Check, done that. Okay, well, then just give away what you have and and just come and follow me. And the man says, well, that's a problem. You know, I kind of like what I have. Um, I've got a lot of it, and you know, to give it all away, that would be kind of silly. And you know, I, I really, really like that stuff. And I know I like you, Jesus, but I kind of like my stuff a little bit more than you. So yeah, I think I'd better pass on this you know, following you business. And that's an example of a, a restricted love. It, it, he loved his possessions more than he loved the Lord, and so he wasn't willing to take that kink out and let the the love run. Or as Peterson puts it, what might be causing us to live lives in a small way and not expansively? The new life is is just not a solitary event in time. Rather, it's an upward journey that, that promises to transform those who follow that path. It will grow bigger and more expansive as we experience it. In the final chapter of the Narnia series that Lewis wrote, uh, and you've got to read those if you haven't done that, but anyway, You've, you've all read, I'm not seeing, many of you have read them. His characters at the end in the last book are, are, are running, racing towards the center of Aslan's, the, the Lord's country. And they're saying, farther up and further in. And they keep going and farther up and further in, farther up. And as they go, the country expands before them. Their vision broadens and they see more and more reality as they go. And it's quite a picture of what, I think we are meant to experience in new life as we go farther up and farther in. So, what holds us back from going farther up and farther in? So, we'll read the rest of the chapter, uh, and then we'll just make a final observation. And the final observation is this, though, that, that I will make is that this new life requires single minded devotion to the Lord. So, chapter uh, 6 verse 14 says in peterson's translation don't become partners with those who reject god how can you make a partnership out of right and wrong that's not a partnership that's war is light best friends with dark does christ go strolling with the devil do trust and mistrust hold hands who would think of setting up pagan idols in god's holy temple But that is exactly what we are, each of us, a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way. Sorry. I'll live in them, move into them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So leave the corruption and compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself. I'll be a father to you. You'll be a son, you'll be sons and daughters to me, the word of the Master God. With promises like this to pull us on, dear friends, let's make a clean break with everything that defiles or distracts us, both within and without. Let's make our entire lives fit and holy temples for the worship of God. So verse 14 is probably the most well-known verse of this chapter. It's often translated, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And uh, usually you hear this verse used in marriage counseling when people are thinking about who they should marry. They, it, this verse is turned to and you say, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It could even be applied to business partners sometimes. I've heard it said that. You shouldn't go into business with somebody who's not a believer. And the old picture of the uh, the oxen and the and the mule yoked together is sort of unequal. Things aren't pulling well if that happens. And that's pretty wise advice, I must say, but it's not really what Paul is talking about in this chapter. It's not a marriage counseling chapter, and there isn't any anywhere you look in this chapter much that you can see about marriage. So in context with the, with the new life, what might Paul mean? So one translation uses the word mismatch instead of unequally yoked to translate the word. And I think that kind of is helpful as Paul begins here talking about faith and no faith, right and wrong, light and darkness, Jesus and Satan. And he then moves to speak about our inner lives uh, being the temple of God and what is in our inner lives. Something that shouldn't be there or something that's a problem. Could be? Could there be anything that does not match? And I wonder if Paul is speaking more about inner mismatching than external relationships here. So, I looked up this word in the Greek, uh, my Greek Bible again. There and and uh, yoked together. The word heterozygio, and I looked at that and I said. That word is awfully familiar to me. I've heard that word before, heterozygous. Where have I heard that word before? Well, you are ahead of me, right? You've all been to biology class in high school, and you've all done Mendelian genetics, and you all know that there's the heterozygous and homozygous things. And so, yeah, what does that have to say to me? It's probably nothing what Paul was thinking about. In terms of Mendelian genetics, but it does help me understand it. So I'm going to use it a little bit on you guys here. And if you remember, uh, just a refresher, of course, there'll be a little exam on this afterwards. That you have uh, two sets of genes, uh, one from your parents on each side, one mother, one father. And uh, each, gene, each chromosome has a bunch of genes on it and they have uh, matching genes so that you have two sets of each genes. That's pretty neat. And if they match, like in that first example here, the A chromosome, or the A one on there, both are the same, then you are called homozygous. Both genes are the same. They're identical and you match. But if you have different genes, like in the second example where there's a big B and a little b, then you have mismatched genes and you're said to be heterozygous. You don't match. So, for example, if you have the gene for straight hair, uh uh, and you are homozygous then your hair is very straight if you have the gene for curly hair the, both genes are curly then you're very curly but if you're heterozygous you have one curly hair gene and one straight hair gene you have wavy hair and some of us lost out altogether on this uh, but but there you are so you, the heterozygous is a mix of the two features it has a blending of the of the two features so So what does all that have to do with what Paul is saying now that you've gone caught up in your biology? In the context of living a new life, a believer should not have mixed or mismatched traits. They should not share their traits of faith with their traits of uh, disbelief. They should not try to look like a Christian and a non-Christian at the same time. We may want to be seen as Jesus' followers, but we don't want to look too different from our neighbors, so we've got to blend in, right? So, you know, that's where we're coming from. We want to look spiritual, but we want to live the way we want to live. We say we love Jesus, but there are a few things in our lives, some idols we call them, that we also want to keep there. You know, we don't want to quite get rid of those things. It might be money, it might be a reputation, it might be relationships or our leisure time could be any number of things but these idols don't belong in God's temple their presence holds us back from living the expanse of new life so being heterozygous in the context of new life has the connotation of living with two different internal values and this will limit or stunt the growth you will, you just won't develop normally It's a bit like having one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. And as that sort of spreads apart, you get the picture. There's a pull in both directions and that picture doesn't end really well. Or it's a bit like what I said at the beginning when we're running through water. We can't get where we're going because we might think we're a fish, but we're not a fish. And and try as we want, we we, we shouldn't be a fish. We should get out onto dry land and run if we want to get anywhere. So leave the water and run to shore. I don't know, how many of you have watched uh, any episodes from The Chosen? Anybody familiar with those? It's a very interesting series, and it's free, and you can get the app and download it and watch it on any device you like. But it's a, a series about the life of Jesus, With details that aren't found in the, in the Gospels, right? It's just, uh, fictional accounts based around the Gospel stories, but a lot of filling that's going on about what the disciples are doing and what they're saying and things like that. And the, one of the, the, my favorite episodes is, is, deals with the encounter of Jesus and Nicodemus, and it's a, it's a really neat episode. But at the end of their time together, Jesus invites in this show, Invite. This doesn't happen in the scriptures. I don't, So, in the show, they inv- Jesus invites Nicodemus to join him. You know, come follow me. And Nicodemus is really, really torn. He he thinks, Wow, I've really found someone who I really like to learn from. But I'm a big rabbi, you know, and I've got lots of uh, of uh, prestige and got a lot of things. And uh, my wife wants me to you know be with her and uh you know like in the at the end of that episode Jesus is getting ready to set off and there's Nicodemus standing behind the corner of the wall just in distress because kind of wants to go with Jesus but kind of wants to be stay he can't, he can't and he's really torn and he's suffering from that two directional pull in his life and i think that's ex- exactly what uh what is happening when we try and mismatch our internal characters. We 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 get that stretching and that pulling in two different directions. He doesn't go with Jesus, spoiler alert, he doesn't go with Jesus. Um, and we're left to wonder what would have awaited when would have awaited him if he had chosen to go with Jesus. So finally Paul writes in chapter seven, verse one, with promises like that, I'll be your father and you'll be sons and daughters to me. With promises like this to pull us on, dear friends, let us make a clean break with everything that defiles or distracts us. That double tension inside. Let's make a clean break with that, both within and without. Let's make our entire lives fit and holy temples for the worship of God. So it's our turn now. Jesus is calling us to live a life devoted to him and not be distracted by the things that would pull us away from that life. What is holding us back from living that marvelous and expansive life that awaits those who are purely devoted to Jesus? Heavenly Father, indeed. We're so amazed at your love, that love that never ends. Thank you, Father. For the love that sent Jesus to the cross for us. Help us, Father, just to live wholeheartedly for you that we wouldn't have one foot in, try and have one foot in each camp, but it would be totally in your service and may you get the honor and glory. we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at BFA church. Until next time.